Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Mark Stuchowski Podcast, the show that's all about helping you perform at an optimum level. I am Mr. Productivity, and it is my obsession in life to teach you how to be a more productive you. And one of the ways I do that is by giving you my top five productivity tips absolutely free. All you have to do is get them. Let's go to my website, Mr productivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com. Get my top five productivity tips for absolutely free. On the show today, Drs. Todd and Kim Saxton, we are going to be talking about startups, success, and failure. We're going to tell you a framework that is going to help you become a successful startup. And we're also going to be telling you a lot of the things startups do to cause their failure. So grab something to write with, something to write on, and let's get to it. Todd and Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Mark. We're so excited to be here. Now, this is uh, you know inside baseball for you, listener. I, I don't normally don't do two other guests who are speaking the same microphone. So this is this is kind of outside my element. We're going to have a good time because we're going to talk about something that maybe you have dealt with and maybe not. We're going to talk about startup success and failure. Yes, that's a word for some reason, Todd and Kim, I have trouble saying the word failure. So like failing, <laughs> I can't say failing. I can't, maybe because I, I'm not supposed to fail. I can't say the word, but we're going to talk a lot about that. Before we get into that, give us a little background about who you are and what you guys do. Yeah, so uh, Kim Saxon here. I am a business school professor at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, and I specialize in marketing broadly, quantitative marketing more specifically, and then also startup marketing. And I am Todd Saxton. I also teach at the Kelly School and strategy and entrepreneurship. Uh, and Kim and I actually met at our first consulting firm out of college thirty uh, some years ago. So, did you guys always want to be teachers when you were growing up? Actually, no. Um, it, it, I, I think there was a thread of educator in both of us. Uh, but when we were doing the consulting and our first child was on the way uh, and, and we were thinking, at least I was thinking, what do I want to do if and when I grow up uh, <laughs> with a, a child coming and, and the consulting gig, as, as some of your audience might know, kind of turns into a lot of travel, a lot of selling a lot of showing up of final projects. But what I really liked was digging into the research that was associated with the product. So kind of the higher I got in consulting, the less appealing, honestly, the work became. And that led to this introspection. Ironically, both of my parents were educators. My father, a college professor. My mom taught reading uh, in K-12. to uh, Kim's mom is a, a bilingual education and science uh, professor. Uh, so we had academia in our in our genes, uh, but it, it, we kind of rediscovered that after a number of years in in consulting, and then decided to go back and get our PhDs, and have been combination of ap- academics and practitioners ever since. You know what's interesting is as you were saying that I'm thinking to myself, I never wanted to be a teacher. And now here I am, a trainer. I, I teach people how to be more productive. So even though I don't have a doctor in front of my name, I am still a teacher. And I think if we really get down to the grass level, uh, we are all teachers. We are all training people at some point in our day. We just don't think about it as being a teacher. But I think every person listening to this episode is a teacher. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And a learner as well. Yes, I, I especially would. So I took a few years out um, to go back into industry and 
um, the academic publishing time horizon is very long and I sometimes need a little instant gratification. And I managed a team at the Eli Lilly and company. And I would tell you that I, I saw my role there really as a teacher and but the reverse is also true that now that I teach, I tell people, I still see myself as a coach and a manager. It's just that my, my direct reports change every 16 weeks. Mm. For better I, and for worse. Yeah, I've learned that from a lot of people I follow, Brendan Burchard and you know Marie Forleo, the two names that come to mind immediately, that people who are so-called experts, they're students first. And when I first heard that, I'm like, what do you mean? I'm, a, I'm an expert. No, good experts are constantly learning. They never get to a point that says, you know, I've got it all figured out. And so I think one of the takeaways the listeners should take from this episode is that, hey, always be a student, whether that's a productivity or startups or Facebook or organic farming, always have the mind of a student first. Would you agree? Yes. And it's really interesting that you say that because one of the, um, one of the debtbergs in, in our framework that we talk about in terms of why startups fail is the entrepreneur that goes out with a solution first and feeling a need to teach their customers or show their customers that solution, as opposed to starting by being a learner, being a good listener, and make sure you have a really good understanding of that problem and that you're speaking the language of your customer before you start translating that into a sales opportunity. Yes, I and I will tell you, I made a mistake about a year and a half ago. I decided to create a course. It's called The Basics of Productivity. You can still get it at mrproductivity.com. The problem is, is I didn't go out and say, hey, prospect, prospects, audience, followers of me, what are you struggling with in terms of productivity? I just created the course. And as a result, I didn't do too well with the course because I did not tap into what was going on. Now I know better. Now, if I'm going to hold a webinar, I say, hey, what do you want to learn about? So then people say, I'd like option A. Then I create a webinar on option A. Now more people attend because now I asked them what they wanted. And I think that's something a lot of people miss. They just think, well, I'm the expert. I'm going to create a course on this and it's going to become a multi-billion dollar seller. And it flops like mine did. And you're like, well, what happened? What happened is you didn't listen to what people needed. Everybody needs help, but you got to put your active, as Judge Judy says, your listening ears on and actually listen to what people want. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really hard. And so we do give some examples in the book of different ways to listen and what to listen for. Because one of the challenges that startups have is when you go and you say, hey, I'm going to start a company and I want to do whatever, that the first people you talk to are like, oh, good on you, mate. You should start a company. That's a great idea. And behind the scenes, they're thinking, well, that is the dumbest idea I have ever heard. Uh, Who is going to wake him up and tell him to stop that? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. People tend to go to the yes people in their lives instead of going out and asking maybe if you're a member of a mastermind group or you're in a group on social media and saying, what do you think about this idea? And let's face it, if 
like I'm like I'm an odd bird in my family. I'm the only entrepreneur. And like in my Bible study class, there's only one other person's an entrepreneur. Nobody else gets it. They're like, get a real job. They don't understand it. So you have to be around people who know, number one, know what you're dealing with. Number two, know the challenges. When I got fired from my job in July of 2005 from a local hospital, no, I wasn't a doctor or anything like that. I was an inventory control coordinator. Just want to clear the air on that. Um, you know, I thought, hey, I'll be an entrepreneur and next week I'll have a private jet. Well, guess what? It didn't happen that way because I had had unrealistic expectations. I didn't know that the journey of an entrepreneur is a journey. And it may take you one year, it may take you 10 years, it may take you 20 years. And it's a lot of work and a lot of time, but you got to be around the right people. And if you don't enjoy that journey, get off that track. Yes. Because you have to enjoy the journey. <laughs> Absolutely. So your book is about startup success and failures. So I want to talk, tackle this on two different ways. Let's talk about a lot of, let's, we'll save the worst for last. Let's talk about what are some of the things startups do right? So if someone's listening to this conversation and they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start a startup. I, I got an idea for a company. What are some of the things they can do that are really simple that they can get going on their journey the right way that will give them the best chance for success? Well, what, one of the frameworks we talk about in the book is what we call the, the PEP model, and that entrepreneurs who have passion, they care about the problem they're solving, they have experience, they, they have listened enough to understand that problem and understand the customer's pain, and then persistence, that your things we were just talking about, this is going to be a long journey, and you're going to have to push through some obstacles, and what good founders do and, and good startups do is to kind of balance those elements of being passionate about the problem, building their experience, and then being persistent in, in moving forward. And, and those are very helpful uh, kind of components that we see that pretty much transcend most different types of startups that, that we see. Okay, let me ask you this question before we go any further. Okay, let's say someone's really passionate about being an organic farmer. They really love the whole aspect of being an organic farmer. They love what it does to the environment, the more nutritional value, all that stuff. Uh, and, and they they're committed, so they're they're going to be persistent at it. But they don't have the experience. Are you saying that they shouldn't start, or they should learn as they go? So I actually have an entrepreneur I worked with in Colorado, uh, names will be left off, who saw a big opportunity. People are buying local. I love organic. So I'm going to start an organic farm and distribution system because there must be a big need for that. So I started asking him, have you been to the farmer's markets? Well, there's one I go to down the street. No. Have you been to the farmer's markets? Have you actually grown your, your own vegetables and, and fruits? Have you gone out and talked to the farmers? Well, no, I haven't, haven't done those things, but I see a big opportunity. I'm really passionate about this area, and I think it's really important. Well, just take that next step to get closer and closer to that market. Uh, go visit. Go offer to work at or, or run a table at one of those organic uh, stands at a farmer's market. Uh, that's, that's the kind of – that leads to that experience. So you need to combine that passion with, with kind of hands-on, uh, close-up and personal experience with the customers, with the product – uh, that will really inform your journey and, and increase the likelihood of success. I've got two more examples I want to add, uh, sure. Mark. So we had also a student who um, really loved the idea of uh, you know laundry like Victoria's Secret, and she was pregnant, and she thought, well, why does all pregnant women's laundry look so awful? <laughs> and so she wanted to start that. 
And the first thing she did is she went and became a clerk at Victoria's Secret. So she could see what people were asking, what things they liked, what their response to different sales approaches were. How do you wrap the things? You know, so she learned the whole language while she was planning her product. So it wasn't like got all that knowledge and then I did it. She had the idea. She's moving them along and um, she successfully launched that business and um, even got some of her products like even into Target. So not just a website. So that was pretty exciting. And the second example I want to give you is somebody who is a serial entrepreneur who decided that this whole produce local and get back to the earth thing was really important. And um, he wanted to have a grass-based uh, livestock. So chickens who ate from the grass and cows who ate from the grass. And he knew that the best price in beef was for Wagyu beef. And so he started with a herd of Wagyu. Well, Wagyu don't eat grass. Oh, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so sadly, he already bought the Wagyu before he discovered that little fact. Um, and so he had to migrate to new breeds, right? And he's been successful. But the first couple of years were, you know, pretty bumpy because of never having had the experience of being a farmer because he was a tech entrepreneur. And, and now we'd say he's really, really accomplished in that. But that meant, you know, learning the difference between hay and straw and going out and getting the best experts. And now, I mean, he goes like to other parts of the world to learn about how you maintain a great grass bed. But Interesting. it could have been a faster uptick. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the example I come up with, obviously, podcasting, people see it's white hot everybody jumps into it and then you know i learned as i go now i used to be a radio dj back in the 80s some people say you sound like johnny jocko that's because i used to be johnny jocko and so you can get your experience you just go start doing podcasting the problem is is the persistence because what happens is about seven or eight episodes you're like oh my gosh i'm not joe rogan i'm not getting 150 million downloads an hour or whatever he gets and you're like oh i'm gonna quit and so a lot of people, it's called pod fading. They start out with a gusto. They do all these interviews. Go, 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 go. And they're like, oh, this is a lot of work. Now, for me, I can literally show up for an interview five minutes before I get started, do the interview. I've done 565 interviews or 565 episodes, 355 interview, uh, interviews, something like that. So I've got experience. But a lot of people just give up because I don't know if they think it's they're going to get million-dollar sponsors at the end of seven episodes or they're going to get billions of downloads or they're going to get like a mansion or a private jet. That's not how it happens. You create a podcast to serve the people, to have guests like you guys on to share your your real-life uh, training and real-life uh, wisdom. But So I can go along with what you're saying. Uh, persistence is what kills a lot of podcasters. Yeah. And that's why we didn't start one. <laughs> so we debated that at the beginning of this year. I was like, should we kick this off? I mean, our book, we have 22 or 32 mistakes that um, startups make. And so we're like, there's 32 uh, podcast episodes right there, right? And if we could add a few other things, we thought we could do like a limited life podcast. And then we started really getting into it and breaking it down. We're like, no, I think we would like to be podcast guests. It's a lot easier, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, let's well, talk it's about really fun. I mean, you were talking about how many people you've you've interviewed, and this part of the process to us, and hopefully to you, it sounds like it is for you. Is just it's really fun. You're talking with smart people who ask interesting questions, and mm -hmm. uh, we we really enjoy that part. 
So let's talk about the big F. Let's talk about the F word, failure. So, uh, Kim, you just mentioned that in the book you talked about, by the way, thank you for sending me a copy of your book. I haven't read it yet, but I will. Uh, you mentioned 32 things that startups do to fail that cause them the failure. I don't want you to give us all 32 because I want people to buy the book, but when our appetite, you guys go back and forth, give us maybe two each of the failures, if you want, of that people do, because we already talked about the framework for starting out the right way, but let's talk about that dreaded F word. Yeah. And I think it helps if you understand the context that we came from. So as academics, we've been studying startups and as educators in the Indianapolis market, we've been working with startups and we've even co-founded a couple of startups. We're on advisory boards or uh, boards. We've invested, we're angel investors. And after you have, you know, a thousand conversations with startups, you start to notice patterns of things that people just naturally do. And we started collecting these sort of, oh, we know this mistake. We've seen this before. And that's how we captured them in the book, um, looking at human-related issues, marketing-related issues, technical-related issues, and just overall strategy issues. And so I always like to talk from the marketing ones. And and this is the one that um, we, we do hear pretty frequently. So you start to talk with uh, a startup founder and you say, um, so tell me more about your product. You know, they explain their idea. And then you say, well, who else is doing this? And the first thing they say is, nobody else is doing this. We're so unique. We are all by ourselves. There is no one else. This is just all new territory. And right there, I put the brakes on. I said, that is terrible. And then they think, oh, well, that means we have no competition. So it's all ours. Will, nothing is yours. There's no market for what you what you're offering. You, you don't have, nobody's helping you educate the market. You, as a startup, you actually want to be in a, a reasonably established market that people are comfortable and know about because that means they know what the criteria to evaluate alternatives is and they have a need that's well established. And what you want to do is be different. You want to be able to say, and the classic example is, is FedEx. FedEx is like the mail, except it's within 24 hours, right? When really they did a whole new thing. But that whole new thing would take so much money and time to teach people about. You have to be anchored in something that people know and then show them how you are different and better. You know, you said the word different, and I just finished reading Sally Hogshead's book, Fascinate. And she's got a saying in there that I love so much. It pops up on my reminders every day. She says, different is better than better. Hmm. Different is better than better because so many people are trying to take this widget and trying to make it better. No, make it different. You know, maybe you make it like aqua pink or some weird color, but better, different is better than better. I mean, Apple, people can say, is Apple better than a PC or not? It doesn't matter. But you know what? You can say they're different. The iPhone is different. And I think different, we need to, we need to concentrate on the difference because can you really be better? Because better is subjective. But if you sit there and go, okay, yeah, well, this is really different. So I really like that quote. And I really like what you said, Kim, about being different. Yeah, I think the key is that you have to also somehow deliver better function through that difference, right? If it's just different, if it's just pink instead of, you know, black and white, you you won't get some attention, but right. you won't get an amazing amount of attention. But if you're pink, and you do something that I couldn't get somewhere else, then I'm really going to love you. 
I, I appreciate that. Todd, what about uh, what's another uh, topic about failure you guys talk about? Yeah, sure. So I, I did want to come back a little bit to the organizing framework because uh, obviously we have identified a lot of these challenges over time and kind of thought about them as uh, these hidden debts. So it's kind of like technical debt. Some of your audience might be familiar with that, particularly building software that you kind of in the early stages build on a rickety infrastructure. And then as you start to scale or grow, uh, it kind of collapses underneath itself. And uh, we see these parallels in these other arenas, as Kim talked about the marketing, uh, but also the human, the, the people that you start a company with and the investors, advisors you bring on board and the early employees. And, and I'll refer to one of those that we see countless times, which is, you know, two or three uh, young folks around the coffee table or over a few beers come up with an idea and they divide all the equity, uh, split it 50-50 or, or what we call the curse of thirdsies before they've even started on their real entrepreneurial journey. Uh, we call that Detberg inequitable equity, that allocating all the equity up front without vesting it over time uh, and assuming that everybody is going to contribute equally through the life of the venture. Uh, those are some of the challenges that, that we see uh, founders make early on that can really come back and, and haunt them. Everybody knows when you start into a new endeavor, you shouldn't be in it for the money first. I mean, I'm a big fan of Shark Tank. Nobody comes in there making millions and millions and millions of dollars because then you wouldn't need an investor. And so you cannot, you got to learn to lead to, uh, you got to start your company to serve first. You got a product that maybe is a solution to some problem out there. But if you're, like you said, you're coming at it like separating and splitting out equity and how much money you're going to make and what we're going to, what color you're going to paint our private jet, you're way ahead of the game. Let's start making money first. Right. Yeah. And related to that, I was just talking to an entrepreneur yesterday and um, who was bringing on some partners and um, she was telling me how she's splitting the equity. And I, I did the simple math that she was holding on to 39% and she gave 22% to one person and 19% to another person. I was like, do you realize that if the two of them get together, they can outvote you? <laughs> she's like, oh, but they wouldn't do that. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> well, you know, you bring up a good point because, you know, until recently, I didn't understand how did Steve Jobs, who started, who co-founded Apple, lose his own company, who gets fired from his own company. And it's because of what you just said. He gave away so many shares that they outnumbered him. Now, I took a, I've read a lot of books on Steve Jobs and, and the creation of Apple. And I know to always maintain 51% of the shares. If I ever go have a com- public to, uh, company that goes public, I will always have 51% because if you dip below that, like you just said, Kim, if they all gang up on you, you could be kicked out of your own company. And to me, how do you lose the company you co-founded? It, to me, it's just mind boggling. Well, the other thing is that somebody has to be the decision maker. And so it's not just, you know, and and this person was saying, well, I didn't want to be greedy. I wanted to really share. I'm like, yeah, but like what happens when you can't make payroll? Is everybody going to put in equally too, or are you actually going to be the one who bails out the company? I mean, somebody has to be in charge, even if it's just two people. One of you has to be the tiebreaker. I mean, otherwise you're not going to function. Right. Todd, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, no, I, I, I'd switch to a different uh, source of debt that we see, if, if sure. that's all right no, with you. No, go right ahead. But, uh, the, the other uh, one that I'd like to point out is more in the, the strategy ocean in our organizing framework, uh, and we call it incomplete integration, that uh, particularly see this with two different types of founders. There's the, the sales and salesy and 
kind of the huckster oriented entrepreneur that loves to sell, loves to market and, and is always out there talking to customers and selling uh, before they actually really develop a product or, or make sure that they can build the product that they're selling. Uh, and that's one kind of Debtberg where you get unbalanced toward the sales side without building out the technology. And the flip side of that, which we see very frequently out of the university setting and with uh, kind of science-oriented or technical entrepreneurs, is the flip side of that where they want to build the product all the way out before they go out and test it with the market. Uh, and that incomplete integration leads to a, a lot of what we call false hope, where you're, you're building something very elegant that customers just don't want or won't pay for. Hmm. Let me ask you this question. Let's say someone is listening to this conversation and you've given them lots to think about. I mean, I got tons of notes written here, but let's say like, okay, you know, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. I, I hear everything that Todd and Kim are saying, but I really have a passion to start my own business. Doesn't matter what it is, but what what should be my next step? I, I know. Let's assume that this person knows what they what they're going to do. They they know the industry, so they've got the experience. Back to your pet model, your pet framework. So they got the experience. They got the passion. What would you tell them to do first if they if they said they're okay? This 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 episode got them really excited, but you don't want them going too fast because then they could run into the failure. We don't want that to happen. So uh, Todd, you go first and then uh, Kim, you chime in as well. What would be the first thing you tell them to do? Well, I would ask the question, have you talked to a prospective customer? Uh, and, and if they haven't, that has to be the next step. Uh, now, so it, it, part of navigating that journey is you don't just answer questions and then it's smooth sailing. Uh, you answer a set of questions like you talk to the customer and then the next step is, okay, I've talked to some customers. I brought that back. I have passion. Now I have my own experience and some information from customers. Well, then the persistence part is, okay, so build some kind of uh, duct tape, bubble gum, and cardboard solution that you can put in front of them and say, okay, here's what we're thinking. I've listened to you, customer. Uh, is this a solution that would meet your needs? And, and kind of navigating that early journey of, of what's called product market fit, that you have developed something that solves a problem that your customers are willing to pay for, and you've identified a customer that recognizes that problem and, and that you're, you're solving that problem for. Uh, that, that can be a very long journey, but those are some of those early steps. Don't spend a lot of money building something until you've gotten either a wireframe or a, a low-fidelity version in, in front of someone to see how they use it, how they break it, uh, and if they're interested. He, of course, stole my idea because <laughs> it really is a marketing idea. So I'd just like to point that out to start with. But I think um, we do sometimes see that uh, founders hold their ideas too close to their chest. And there is a very famous founder who actually goes out and tells people and says, you know, don't tell anybody your idea too early. You got to hold on to it until you got it all ready and then spring it on the world. And I would say the reverse is really true. And we sometimes have founders come to us and say, well, I want to tell you about my idea, but you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement first. It's like, really? I mean, if you're passionate about the idea, what's the likelihood that I'm going to pick up your idea and outrun you with it? It's very, very low. So, you know, talk it up, you know, get people talking about it and giving you input and you have to synthesize all that input. We can go to successful 
new business after successful new business, the first thing they did is they put a product into people's hands and said, you know, break it. What don't you like? TRX, he did, you know, Friday liquidity events where he threw his stuff out on Venice Beach and said, you know, break it. Um, I think sometimes people are afraid that people will actually break it. And, you know, that's crushing. The first time we wrote our first chapters, we sent them out to people. And you know what people told us? Our baby was ugly. (laughs) There's some good ideas here. Cute feet. Cute feet. Love the hands. And it caused us to shuffle the whole organizational structure of the book um, because, you know, that's what people said they wanted. And so you got to give people what they want. Um, But getting feedback is hard. People don't like everything you do. You know, I could I can admit that I did that same thing when I started the world of productivity coaching. You know, I kept everything close to the vest. Like I was the only productivity guy in the entire world. And not only that, there's breaking news people for you here on the Mark Stuchowski podcast. There's 8 billion people on the planet. I can't serve 8 billion. I can't serve a million people. I can't have 500,000 one-on-one clients. So, you know, there's plenty of people around. Some people don't want a male productivity coach. Maybe some people don't like a bald productivity coach or a former radio DJ. There's plenty of people out there. And what I find when I, you know, my most popular network is LinkedIn. I'm always sharing tips and people go, well, you're giving everything away. Why are people going to hire you? Well, if you want the personalized one-on-one attention where I'm focused on you and your problems, then you invest in me. Or you can do it um, if you follow Seth Golden. He's a marketing uh, genius. I know you guys know who it is. You can read all his books and get all his knowledge. It's all in the books. Or if you don't want, if you're too cheap to buy the books, you can read every single blog post he ever wrote for free, and it's all in there. But most people don't want that. Most people just say, "Hey, create a course so I can just go through the course in four hours or five hours and learn everything." I don't want to read all your books or go through all your blog posts. And so I did the same thing. Now I I don't keep anything. I I share everything. And I'm still getting people coming to me because now they go, wow, if he gives this stuff, this much stuff away for free, my goodness, if I hired him, he's probably going to be even better. Exactly. And um, that is the second problem that I see in marketing, which is uh, where people go, I ask, so who's your target audience or who is your ideal customer? Everyone. <laughs> Everyone, everybody can use this. Well, everybody can use this, but everybody isn't going to use this. You can't talk to everybody. And actually, everybody has different needs. Yes. So who is your ideal customer? I mean, some people think segmentation is a dumb idea anymore. Well, it really isn't. I mean, it's just about identifying your ideal customer, which I usually say is somebody who already knows they have this problem, has this problem a lot. And is willing to pay money for it. So you have to stop and think, like, who needs this the most? And go for them. Don't try and convince people that they need something. Go to the people who already know they have a problem. And you got to speak their language, too. I I just went through Marie Forleo's uh, B-School and the Copy Cure. And one of the things, like, everyone wants to be more productive. But no one says, I want to be more productive. What they say is things like, man, I am overwhelmed with everything I have to do. So what I'm doing now, I'm actively doing this right now on June 5th. I'm going through my website, and I'm making it, changing the copy to reflect the words that people actually think and say. Because... No one says, I want to increase my productivity today. Only a nerd says stuff like that. And so I've learned that the hard way. That's why I wasn't getting a lot of traffic to my site in the in the previous years, because it was written from my perspective using $300 words. And that's not how people talk. 
So it's so funny. I did a workshop last night for the startup ladies here in Indianapolis on this very topic and showed them how to use Google Trends, Google Keyword Planner, hashtag, you know, uh, and other tools to actually create a hierarchy of language because we know the language that people use at the beginning of their decision or the top of the funnel is going to be very different than in the middle or as they're getting closer to purchase. And you need to know what that hierarchy of language is. I mean, the funny thing is when we started writing this book, uh, we came at it from an academic perspective and the words we use are entrepreneurship. And so we started framing some of our language in entrepreneurship. And then I did the Google Keyword Planner and discovered that the word startup has like 10 times the volume of the word entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really key. I, one of the tools I've, learned, I've recently invested in is uh, Neil Patel's Uber Suggest. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Sure. Um, yeah. It's incredible because it gives you, you know, related words, comparison, Google traffic. It takes everything that's out there for free and puts it in one platform. It's like 29 bucks a month. It's incredible. Uh, he's a whiz when it comes to SEO. The guy's brilliant. And I made a lot of changes to my website and the way I do things because of that. So as we come to the end of this show, what I want to do is I want to ask you one umbrella question. So I want you, Todd, to answer it and you, Kim, to answer it. Uh, here's a question for you is what is one thing that you want to leave the listener with as a result of this episode? And then also want you all to talk about your book. All right. I'll start with one. Uh, hopefully there's a, a seed of, of help for, for your listeners. Uh, and, and that is, as we were talking through kind of productivity and these icebergs, that being a good, successful business person of any type or really person, but but especially founder is about the willingness to make trade-offs, to, to choose what not to do as well as to choose what to do and what to do next. And being very intentional about that and recognizing that doing everything, trying to, to manage, I think that's one of those challenges that the, the people you were talking about who want to start something, who are passionate, they just feel flooded with trying to do everything at once. And it's okay to be intentional about trade-offs and say, here are the things I'm not going to do yet. Uh, and, and that's not failure. That's not giving up or giving in. Uh, that is a sensible way to make choices and, and proceed. My words of advice are usually to just take the first step. I mean, people look and look and hem and haw and think and plan, and they've got these beautiful plans on whiteboards and everything. You've got to take the first step. You've got to pick a name. You've got to, you know, put a piece of product on paper and make a low, low fidelity version of it. You've got to just break it down and take the first steps. Otherwise it's just dreaming. And tell us about your book. Yeah. So the book is called the Titanic effect, successfully navigating the uncertainties that sink most startups. And as we were coming up with a book, we worked with uh, Michael Korn, who's a serial tech entrepreneur and he, did a presentation that we'd seen a couple times about technical debt. And we, we started looking at each other and saying, Hey, wait a minute, you know, startups are taking on debts in other areas besides the software. And so we looked at this concept of hidden debts. Like I make a decision today without understanding the consequences of the, in the future. And so all we're trying to do is call out that these are likely choices you have to make because there's trade-offs and because there's uncertainty, you don't know what's going to happen, but 
there are these hidden debts that come along with them. And so you need to figure out how to mitigate those and monitor them and see, you know, hey, have we misstepped here? How do we fix that? So I'm kind of the the visualization and the naming guy. So as we were talking through this, I was kind of visualizing icebergs and shared that with Kim and, and Michael and uh, we're like, yeah, iceberg's good. And when you think about icebergs and failure, obviously the Titanic is something that comes to mind for many of us. So I was like, all right, we're going to call our presentation the Titanic effect, how to avoid start sinking your startup. And uh, that was kind of the superficial level, but then we moved into the next step. So I said I was the quantitative person. So I'm like, as an academic, you can't say something that you can't prove. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I started doing research and we discovered that if you thought of the Titanic as a startup, the White Star Line had been around for a long time, but if you thought of it like a startup, that they were making the same kind of mistakes that we saw people making from having a technology that had never been tested. They really innovated the engine and what they were trying to accomplish there. And it turns out that it was very difficult to change directions um, and uh, they had multiple segments they were trying to serve. And the biggest were the, the technical debts. You want to talk about that? in the Yeah, sure. So at, at, in part, an interaction between marketing and, and uh, the, the kind of technical side, the design issues to make the dining room more beautiful and luxurious, they made it two level, which actually lowered the bulkheads and made the ship sink a lot faster uh, than it would have otherwise. They oh, also... <laughs> yeah, they, they brought on some investors, which is another category we talk about in the book. Uh, some investors who made them change shipyards, uh, and that's the shipyard who built the Titanic, but also uh, change strategy from a strategy of speed to a strategy of size and, and luxury. Uh, so as we did this research, the, the narrative just really came together. And it, you know, if you just give people a list of here are the 32 things that will sink you or you shouldn't do um, – that's not very exciting, right? <laughs> but but we liked this kind of visualization and narrative of using the Titanic as a metaphor and uh, then then building on that, looking at the White Star Line and, and that model of the Titanic and then saying, what can we learn from that? And, and fast forward with some examples from uh, today's technology and other types of companies. So all the mistakes are icebergs and you are sailing the ocean and we have a big map and you can track your icebergs and there's an index to evaluate where you've taken on debt that you didn't realize. And um, hopefully we are helping startups sail more smoothly. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you both for being incredible guests on the podcast today. You gave us a lot to think about. And listener, like I always say, they gave you a lot, but just pick one thing and get mm -hmm. moving in the right direction. Don't get overwhelmed. So Todd and Kim, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And just before we go, don't forget to head on over to my website, mrproductivity.com, and pick up my top five productivity tips for absolutely free, mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mark Stuchowski Podcast. Until we meet again, my friend, go be productive.